Welcome to Street Smart Success, where real estate entrepreneurs share their backgrounds, experience, and lessons learned. This is Roger Becker, your host. Learn with me as I drill down with guests about their paths to success and what they're doing now. So today we have with us a lady who is has quite a background in many corporate positions with some interesting interesting things that she's done but she is currently the COO of the AL family of companies which includes the residential assisted living academy the pitch masters academy and there are a few others so she she definitely has a lot to do she has a lot on her plate she is and also involved in all kinds of like charitable stuff she is very 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 impressive and who is she she is Isabel Guarino-Smith. Isabel, welcome to Street Smart Success. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I appreciate it. So I know you got to this. I know that there's some family stuff because I've done a little bit of reading and, and we'll get into that. But I guess before getting into the business, what did you do? Like, what's your background? I know you're an Arizonan. I know you went to Arizona State. I know you're in Phoenix now. But like, what was the lead up to everything you're doing now. Yeah. So after I graduated college, you know, my dad was very much choose your own path. So I became a flight attendant, not using my uh, degree at all, but having a whole lot of fun traveling around. (laughs) And I had some really great internships and job experience in college, but then, you know, being a flight attendant is a lot of fun, but you don't make much money at all. So I kind of started seeing what my dad was doing. He was a real estate investor for over 40 years, um, but he had transitioned everything he was doing in real estate to residential assisted living, so senior housing. And when I saw what he was doing and I saw the change in his you know, demeanor and, and him being you know, hanging out with old folks all the time, I'm like, what is going on? So um, I kind of just started opening his office door and and listening and hearing and learning more. And I became really, really invested and intrigued in what he was doing with residential assisted living. So I kind of pushed my way into his business, became his first employee, and then helped launch eight companies with him from there. Okay. Well, thank you for clarifying because I was so mistaken and I'm glad I was because that's more interesting. I thought that you... Had joined. I, I didn't realize that you were his first employee. Let's just put it that way. So you've been. So you, you've been integral to everything that's been done. That is absolutely outstanding. I, for some reason, mistakenly thought you would join later on in the process. But this is even better. So I guess my question is about the first question is if your dad was a re, was an investor for forty years and then he kind of went all in into residential, you know, assisted living uh, seniors. Why did he do that? And when did he do that? Yeah. So his mom, my grandmother fell and broke her hip in about 2011, I want to say. And, you know, it's like, what do you do at that point? Right. You got to put them in a home, give them in-home care or quit your job and take care of them yourself. And so he kind of was faced with that decision and he was searching for something suitable for her. He kind of stumbled into residential assisted living and realized really quick, I'm going to be paying five grand a month for her to live here or I could own the real estate, own the business. She can live for free and I could be cash flowing $10,000, $15,000 on this same home. 
So he stopped everything he was doing, purchased the business, purchased the real estate up and running, no idea what he was doing, right? Um, But jumped right in two feet forward with the intent to move his own mother in. So it started really selfishly with a family issue. Like how can we solve our own issue? You know, that's the way a lot of these things start. A lot of businesses start. Where uh, is that facility and how many beds was it? And like where in, I assume it's in Phoenix, but where in in Phoenix? Yep, it's in Phoenix. It's right uh, kind of outside of downtown. I don't even know the main roads it's on. I know one of them is like, I know the actual street it's on the address, but I don't know the main roads, but it's right outside of downtown. Um, And so he purchased that right away, pretty much getting into this. And um, my grandmother never actually moved in. She passed before she could because she was living in upstate New York at the time. So, you know, we found something in Phoenix. Everything in upstate New York was terrible. I wouldn't want to leave my goldfish, let alone my grandmother. So we still own and operate that property. There's 10 bedrooms, 10 bathrooms in it. It was an existing business when we purchased it. It's residential, not commercial. It's in a regular single family neighborhood. And that's all we focus on is residential assisted living. So um, clear this up for me. So you you didn't buy the one. Oh, oh you're saying, I see. Your grandma didn't move in, but you guys had already acquired the property. And Correct. You, and, and you still own it. Yep. Got it. And then how many others do you own? We have purchased two more single families after that and converted them to become RALs. Um, and now we invest in a lot of our students and people that we come in contact who want to get into this industry. So own and operate three on our own and invest in probably 50 all across the country at this point. Okay. So you're saying you're invested in 50 throughout the country? Yeah. And, and, and these are through your through your students that have kind of taken flight and, and they're doing this and you guys are, are participating in those. Correct, correct. Because that's a way that you can play in this. You don't have to own the real estate or own the business. You could just be a JV lender or partner with someone on these deals. You know, for your listeners who are more passive, that's a great opportunity for them to still play in this ballgame. Okay, very, very interesting. And um, yeah, it is compelling. So when did he, and it just just because I'm like a detail guy, actually, I'm not a detail guy, but on this podcast, I'm a detail guy. <laughs> when, when, when did he buy the one that your grandma was going to move into? 2011. Okay, 2011. And you already said that, and I'm demonstrating poor listening abilities. Okay, so that's fairly, fa- fairly recent. Okay, and so... What is the nature of the business specifically around Isabel? Are these people mostly buying single families and then converting? If so, you know, how, how big are they? How many bedrooms? What's involved in the transformation? And what does that cost and all that fun stuff? Okay. So lots of questions there. The four ways you can get started. One is buying land and building a custom home from the ground up. That obviously has a certain timeline around it, maybe a year to three years, depending on your contractors and your plans, right? You can buy a single family home and convert it to become. This also has a total range and timeline from three to 12 months, depending on are you adding a 3,000 square foot addition or are you, you know, just not even breaking down any outside walls and just chopping it up differently within the home, right? 
Third, you can lease the home to do this. So partner with someone who owns the real estate. They've already retrofitted. It's ready to go. You're going to lease the home from them and operate the business within their home. And fourth, you can do that first way we got in where you're purchasing the real estate, purchasing the business. You're up and running day one. So all of those different timelines and price points, as far as square footage, that question, you want at least 300 to 500 square feet per resident. So if you have 10 residents, minimum of a 3,000 square foot home, upwards of 5,000 is much more comfortable. The state will require like 80 to 100 square feet per person, but that's cruel. That's really too small. And I would not recommend that. We always say go above. These should be nice. They should be beautiful. They should be in really nice parts of town. We're doing this luxury style, not bar minimum, you know? I understand. Okay. Yeah. That would be, that would be cruel. Um, I get that on the number three that mm-hmm. you listed, you know, where you can lease a home that's already been. Uh, I forget the term you used, uh, already outfitted. That's not the term, but that was... Renovated, yeah, retrofit. Okay. And in those cases, Isabel, are those ones, are you saying already renovated and and already uh, renovated for the purpose of assisted living? Correct. Okay. And then roughly, and I guess it's got to be all over the map, so maybe a silly question, but I can't help myself from asking it. Um, because it probably depends on the layout of the house and in the shape of the house, et cetera, and how much structural stuff you do. But all that being the case, what is a range of what it costs to, to, to convert a home into, you know, five or six, you know, uh, living, you know, habitable living spaces of three to 500 square feet? So it wouldn't be five or six. In most states, you can have between six and 16 residents. So unless you're in a state that only allows six, which I know you shared you're in California, your maximum is six. So I would want five to six bedrooms, five to six bathrooms minimum in California. Mm. In a state like Ohio, Illinois, Texas, where you're allowed to have 16, I'm going to want 14 to 15 to 16 bedrooms as well as that many bathrooms. So that home does not exist, right? You have to renovate that home, you know, buy one that exists or build it from the ground up. So completely different renovation costs also depending on where you are in the country. That absolutely ranges. So very hard to answer that question because the answer is it depends. It depends on the property. It depends on what you need to do. If you're talking about getting a 2,000 square foot home that you're turning into an 8,000 square foot home, completely different than if you're already buying something that's 6,000 square feet and you're not breaking down any outside walls, right? You're just chopping it up differently. So it really, really ranges. Hey, Street Smart listeners, I'd like to introduce a great partner for you. As you know, insurance is one of the biggest expenses on the P&L. That's why I'm recommending Assured Partners. Assured Partners helps you lower risk and therefore can save you tons of money down the road. They insure over 2 million market rate and affordable units and are the sixth largest insurance property broker in the U.S. If you want a roll-your-sleeves-up partner that blankets you with service, give Robert Band, vice president, a call. Robert thinks like a CFO because he was a CFO for many years. Give Robert a call now at 305-467-5909. You'll be glad you did. So you said that, that California has a max of five to six people? Of six, yeah. Statewide, your maximum is six. Every state has a maximum allowance of residents in the home. And why is that? Oh, 
every state making their own rules, right? What they think is appropriate, What wh- where, where is the limit where now it needs to be commercial. And so it needs to have commercial kitchens, commercial parking and different levels of licensure. So every state gets to make up their own rules. Okay. And so with California in particular, there's a limit of five, which it just seems total not knowing and coming in from the cold, which is why I do this podcast because I learned. I'm like, why would that be? Like, wh- why not 10 and why not 15 or, or, or eight? Like, that sounds weird. Why is that? I don't know. You'd have to call the state <laughs> and ask them, right? They, they're making up their own rules. I will say this. The cost of real estate is significantly more expensive in California. So I'm not mad that the rule is six because to get a five-bedroom, four-bath home, that already exists in California all over the place. You don't have to do that much renovation, if any at all, in most of your regular homes, right? My own personal home is a six-bed, five-bath. Like This would work if I lived in California. Here in Arizona, our limit's 10, but our real estate's a lot cheaper. So I do have that flexibility of money to be able to play and do a renovation for you guys the home alone is going to cost a lot, but if you don't need to do that much to it, that really saves you in the long run. So I don't mind that it's six in California, but of course, I want as many residents as possible. So being in a state like Texas with 16, that's pretty nice. Is it more profitable the more residents you have typically because you amortize costs? Yeah. Of course. So each, the national average to live in an assisted living home is $4,500 per month per person. And that's the national average. So California is about 5,500. You know, you DC is almost 7,000 per person. It totally ranges, but we only do above average homes. So our rates are significantly higher than those. Oh, wow. Totally cool. And then where does the money come from? So is it, does insurance cover it? Does the state cover it? Uh, is it private or is it all the above? Is it a mixture? How, do, how does, what does that look like? Great question. So there are homes that will accept government funding, whether it's Medicare, Medicaid, they usually pay about $1,800 per month per resident. So I avoid that because that would not be in line with the average rates and you're not going to be able to really make any money on this investment. So we typically focus on clients who have VA benefits, long-term care insurance, or are using private pay, whether that's their own capital from their IRA or their own savings or selling their physical home and using that money to pay for their care needs or their adult children. Many times it's the adult children who are paying for their loved ones to live in these homes. All right. And by the way, you are so animated and so passionate. I just, I I, I love it. So are there states that are more conducive to this business than others because of regulations, but even just aside from regulations, just for whatever reasons? Yeah, I always like to say, raise your hand if you're getting older or know someone who is, right? (laughs) And there's people aging everywhere. Just because you turn 85 doesn't mean you move to Florida or Arizona, right? If you lived in Charleston, South Carolina your whole life, you're probably staying there even in old age, right? So there is opportunity everywhere. Right now, the silent generation, there's 44 million of them. That's who's living in assisted living right now. We're still 10, 15, 20 years out from the baby boomers needing this type of care and assistance. And there's 76 million of them. So almost double the amount, almost double the amount of what's currently there. And we are currently 1.3 million beds short. 
So there is massive supply and demand differentials right now where we could not create these beds fast enough for the coming need, right? It's about to be insane. If someone had a crystal ball in 2008 and told you what was going to happen, that's one of these moments where it's like, follow the money. The baby boomers have been driving our economy for the last 70 years. This is their final, you know, goodbye. And it's our chance to take advantage of those trends that they create. So it's a really, really great opportunity, no matter the market. Although I'm always going to say, avoid a city, right? These are residential homes. We're not going to pop one down in the middle of New York City or San Francisco, right? We want to be in a more suburban area. We want to make sure that the demographics fit the need. That's always a big key thing. And that there's density and demand in that area, right? Making sure we have the right people around us who are going to need this. Okay. And then, first of all, when did you start the Assisted Living Academy? 2013, my dad did his first training on this. Got it. So he's a he's a he he was a brilliant entrepreneur then. And yeah. and in in roughly how many students would you say that you've had through through the academy? Oh, good question. We host trainings every six to eight weeks, um, and we've done that for basically the last ten years. Our classes in the beginning only had forty or fifty people, and now they have about a hundred and fifty people per class. We do online trainings as well, and a couple hundred people going through those every week. So I would say uh, maybe four or five thousand students by now, because it's it's been a while, probably. Okay, so four to five thousand. What would you say are the characteristics of people that have been successful, that are successful operators? Love this question. My number one character trait that they all have, because they all look different, come from different backgrounds, starting at different, you know, starting lines, right? But the number one thing they all have in common is grit. People who are willing to get hit in the face and get back up and keep going. This is not the easiest, you know, venture to take. This is not the easiest form of real estate. It is tough. There are rules, there are regs, you've got staff, you're dealing with people's lives. It's a very sensitive time for the families. So people who have grit, determination, passion, and a really strong why are always the ones who are successful. Just like any other business, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but, there, but there's a there, there's different new there's you know there's different you know facets of this but but yeah ultimately yeah I mean I show me a business that's really easy and I'm gonna get into it right away no matter what it costs yeah got it what what would be some specifics more than it just being you said rules regs dealing with staff you know dealing with I'm sure the the residents etc are there a couple that are just like the hardest for people to to manage? Yeah, I think in general, in any business, your most difficult thing is always people. And so there's a lot of people involved in this, right? Your caregivers and your licensed administrator, that's who's doing all the day-to-day within the home. And so dealing with them and you know what they want and what they need and keeping them happy, making sure they're following your rules. I mean, that's a whole challenge in and of itself, as well as the actual seniors, right? It is not fun to be 90 plus years old and have it be painful to get out of bed and walk to the kitchen and not be able to feed yourself or be forgetting everything. That's not a fun time of life. So being sensitive to them, loving on them, giving the quality care that they need and want, it's easy to get frustrated at that point in life. It's easy to be angry or upset about your body failing you, your mind failing you. So being cognizant of that and just being able to be sensitive to that is really important. 
as well as the families that come with that senior. There's a lot of high expectations when you put your loved one in a care home. And it's important that you're really sensitive to them, the guilt that they may be feeling, right? The loss of who they knew their parent to be. So it's like therapy dealing with the families, the seniors, you know, the caregivers and and the administrators, but people in any business is always going to be your most difficult thing. Okay. What percentage of people, of your students, do you think own more than one facility? Oh, good question. We teach and train to scale this. We always encourage at least having three homes. So I would say over the years, I've never had anyone come to class where they say my plan is just to have one. They always want more than one. Um, So I would say at least 70% have more than one. Wow. I mean, that's, uh, that's, I mean, it's impressive just because most people that, that endeavor to do anything, whether it's okay, I'm going to buy a subway. Like, like I doubt very many people go, I want to own one subway sandwich shop. I don't know why that subway always comes to my mind, but it does in this conversation. Uh, But yet the amount that get past one is probably a, a vast minority, whether they're undercapitalized, they don't, you know, they, they don't, they don't have the management shops, you know, whatever, whatever it is. Um, yeah. So that would be that, that, that is super, super high. I, I think it's, I think it's kind of like having kids, right? Like the first one is difficult and they drop the binky and you're like, red alert, like we can't put it back in the kid's mouth. We, you know, dunk it in Lysol and whatever. The second kid, you drop the binky, you're like, pop it back in their mouth. And the third kid, you don't even lick it. You just throw it in their mouth. You're like, they need the germs, right? The first is always the hardest. Once you get through that, you've beat so many other people just to get past that, just to be in this industry. Every challenge you have, someone else is left behind because they're not willing to jump through that hoop. So once you've done it, once you're there, it's a lot easier to do it again and then again and then again. And I think people become... Uh, once you get that waiting list and you're like, man, I'm turning money away. Now you're like, I, I need to open another. You know, you get that itch to, to keep doing it again. Are there scenarios? So I actually am an, a, a partner in some facilities, but they're bigger. So they're like 30 beds, anywhere from, I don't know, maybe on the low side, 15 beds. And they're not converted homes. They were, they were built as you know, is bigger facilities. They weren't, they weren't, they weren't people's homes. And one of them is like a nine facility portfolio and the other one's, I think, four. And the occupancy has been intermittently challenging because it's hard to, you know, people die and then some of these are in more rural areas and you can't, you know, I mean, there's only so many people that has very, very needs based. It's not like, hey, I want to give myself a Christmas present and go live in a residential facility, right? It's 100% needs driven. So I guess I wondered, is, is that something that rears its head or, or to people or, or people in markets that they ended up, ended up being more competitive than they thought with more facilities and, and more beds available? Does that, Does that come into play? Doing that demographic research and the internal feasibility study before you even get into this is vital, right? If you haven't done your research, you will fail. Like you have to be located absolutely perfectly. I get shown hundreds of homes a day. And the first thing I ask is, what are the demographics? Is it 50 to 70 year olds who are upper middle class, who are homeowners right nearby? If not, 
I don't care if it's the perfect home. I wouldn't even look at it. Demographics are everything. And then determining how many beds already exist in the area, how many homes are there, are they full with waiting lists? Are they full and no waiting lists? Are they not full? That's going to determine if I want to do it there as well, right? So lots of different factors that you have to consider because location has to be perfect. Also, marketing is a massive part of this. You never stop marketing. People ask, when should I start marketing? Yesterday, right? You need to be telling people you're there, you're the best and why they need to be coming to you every day, all day. That is like so, so, so vital. So we do a huge section in our training on marketing because I can't stress that enough. But I will also say, COVID completely shook up the big boxes' reputations, right? We've been saying for a long time, smaller is better. You know, just step inside, you'll see and you'll understand. And then COVID happened and people have been ripping their parents out of big facilities, begging to come into our homes because we do not have to follow those same rules and regs that most of those big facilities were forced to follow. And our staff to resident ratio is significantly better. There's way less people coming in and out. So it's easier to control and maintain the safety of the seniors. So we have seen a massive shift. And at all the conventions and events I go to that are big box owners, all they talk about is how do we look and feel and make people think we are smaller homes. Um, So they're trying to copycat us and they will eventually, they'll figure it out. But for right now, it's a tough time to be in the commercial senior housing industry for sure. Hmm. Very interesting. Are, are there, are there, um, you know, like you said about your students and the people that go on to operate, you said they, they looked at, you know, they, they look different. I mean, it's, it's all over the map. Yeah. It's not exactly what we said, but that was the gist of it. But are there certain industries that, that the, they come from that are, that we're like this, that comes from this industry. That's a good thing. Maybe the likelihood is better. They'll be super successful. Yes. My favorite pairing is a husband-wife team who one is medical and one's a real estate investor. That is my favorite pairing because they have exactly the opposite of what the other one needs. You do not have to be a medical professional to do this industry, but it surely does help. Not only to have those initials behind your name for marketing purposes and to be able to say it's a doctor-owned home, it's a nurse-owned home, but also the fact that if you are in the medical professional industry, right, you probably have a more sensitive, caring heart to people and you want to serve and you understand what the caregivers and the administrator go through on the day to day. So it really helps to have someone who understands the real estate, the business side, and someone who understands the sensitive, the family, the staffing, the senior side. I love that pairing. Hmm. You've spoken about marketing and so and, and the need for it and, and it has to be perpetual and you can't take your foot off the, the pedal, yep. uh, off the gas. What marketing? So what is the marketing you do specifically? Yeah, so definitely it's from everything from having websites and Facebook pages to having physical brochures and business cards. You're going to meet with everyone and anyone in this industry from hospice people to elder law attorneys, long-term care insurance agents, local churches, synagogues, temples, right? All of these different people are there and will help you fill your beds. 
Not to mention there's an entire industry of people called placement agents. And that's who you go to when your loved one needs 24-7 care. And they basically say, where do you want the home? What price point are you willing? And what amenities are you looking for? And they pretty much give you business cards of what suits your needs. And if you move into one of those, they get paid usually one month's rent or a half of the first month's rent. So you can work to pay for those things, but also you can build relationships with so many people in the industry. Got it. And so in in a home, let's say it doesn't matter where it is, but let's say you have, and I understand you you get up to more than one unit is the whole idea, two, three units, maybe some of your exceptional students maybe get beyond that. But who is it? What person does typically ends up doing this marketing in the organization? It could be you or it could be your licensed administrator. So in the real estate world, we call that the project manager, right? Someone who, or property manager, I apologize. So someone who's kind of there on the day-to-day dealing with all of that stuff. So that's kind of what the licensed administrator does. They might be responsible for marketing, touring the home, filling the home, hiring and firing your staff, payroll, all of the day-to-day. I do one phone call a week and I visit my homes every other month because that licensed administrator is doing all of the day-to-day. And that's how I like to teach people to set this up, to work on the business, not in it. What does a licensed administrator typically make? Totally ranges, right? It it depends on what you're asking them to do, right? So it could be anywhere from $500 a month to just hang their license on the wall and then you're paying somebody else a little bit more to do their job. It could be you're paying them a percentage on how full the homes are. So if they're going to be in charge of marketing and filling the beds, I might not want to pay them their full rate if the beds aren't full. Maybe it's a certain percentage depend on how many are full. It could be a flat salary per home. But this isn't like a $200,000 a year job. No, it's usually minimum wage plus maybe a couple bucks an hour, maybe plus five, right? It's not that crazy. Hmm. Well, I would think based on, in, in my mind, not knowing any better, it sounds like there's so much responsibility. If somebody has that gig full time where they're like the number, they're running that whole plus they're running the facility and they're charging marketing. I'm thinking to myself that you'd have, you'd pay them 80 grand a year. No, potentially, right? That's not that much in a lot of markets. Like right. you could be paying them pretty well. Most managers can oversee two to four homes. That's full time for them. My gal is an absolute unicorn, and she oversees my three. And when she came to us, she said, "My goal is to open my own." So we helped her purchase the real estate for her own two. So she oversees my three and her two. She's got five homes under her belt and she's a rock star. So two to four is usually average. Um, I'm lucky I have a unicorn. <laughs> Once you get to three, and again, it, it depends on you know the market because of what the expenses are, probably what the labor costs, I would imagine, be a big. And obviously, well, the real estate costs, the labor costs, et cetera. But, but what can a successful three... A unit portfolio make bottom line in in Dallas and Houston and Ohio, et cetera, et cetera, with you know fifteen beds or something like that. So if we were to do fifteen, well, do you want to do ten because that's more in the middle of? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay, so let's use national average of forty five hundred dollars a month per person times ten beds. So we're bringing in forty five thousand dollars every single month, right? Right. Our expenses maybe they fall around thirty thousand dollars a month because you know we've got to pay for that staff. That's pretty much all in baking in vacancies, property insurance, property tax, utilities, food, cable, internet. I mean everything. 30K. 
Now, the mortgage, the debt service, maybe that's $5,000 a month, right? That's leaving us with $10,000 of monthly net or $120,000 annually. So if you had three of those homes, 10 each, you could be making 30K a month on those homes. Hmm, interesting. And so you have that. So how many employees so with, with 10 home, with, mm-hmm. with 10 beds, how many employees does it? Because if you're saying 30,000 in expenses, what percent of the percent of that is payroll? Your payroll, your caregivers, not your administrator, but your caregivers should be 40% or less of your total expenses. So caregivers, again, are usually paid minim- minimum wage plus a dollar or two. It's not very much that they're being paid, but 40% or total of your expenses will be going to this staffing. Now, uh, sorry, I forgot the first question. It was how... I don't don't remember either. (laughs) (laughs) It was a good one, but I already forgot it. I'm sorry. Well, yeah, I don't don't remember. Uh, I was asked... Well, the first question was just, which I think you answered. I don't remember another one. I was going, what percentage of of the 30 grand is staff? Yes. You asked how many staff do you have? Right. I did. Thank you. Yes. Okay. So um, we like to do a four to one or a five to one resident to caregiver ratio. So if we have 10 people living in the home, I want at least two staff on during the day and potentially one at night to care because most of them will be sleeping at night, right? So most of these caregivers are working 10, 12 hour shifts like a nurse. So if you have multiple homes, they could be working three or four days for you here and three or four days for you here. You're not paying overtime and they're getting a full two full-time jobs. So it's a really good thing to be able to scale and share that staff. It's not the same people every single day because they can only work three or four days for you with those longer shifts. So you're going to need for one home of 10 people, maybe 10 people on staff to be able to do that shift work. So the more homes you have, the more you can share those resources. Mm. It's interesting. In my mind, because I don't come from this business, I would think it would be really hard to get good people, A, A, good people, and B, people that would stay and do this kind of work for minimum wage plus a couple extra bucks. You know, it's really interesting. Over the last two years, they called it the great resignation, right? A lot of people leaving their jobs. And I read this thing that said when surveyed, 70% of people who left their jobs said they did not leave for more pay. They left because they didn't feel appreciated. Something we focus on really hardcore in our training is changing the way we act as employers. We're having a cultural shift where people are saying, no more am I going to spend my day at a place where they don't love me, they don't respect me, they don't speak to me kindly, they don't pay me fairly, treat me fairly. And I don't blame people for wanting to leave an environment where they feel that way on a day-to-day, right? Who would want that? Like we spend most of our lives at work. Don't you want it to be a positive experience? So I think it's really time for employers to step up. We do a lot of things with our staff that makes them feel extra appreciated and loved, whether it's having them take the five appreciations in the workplace quiz. So we can find out how we can love on them best, whether it's finding out their goals and their passions. I've had people who say, I've always wanted to be a nurse and I help put them in community college. We've had people say, my car keeps breaking down and I've paid to fix their car. I've had students who they had a caregiver whose teeth were all messed up so she wouldn't smile. They bought her a full set of teeth. Now I'm not saying you have to always do that, but these are the things that curate loyalty with people. And when a caregiver is working super, super hard for you and is giving you their best, you're making so much money in this industry 
you have the ability to give back. That's why I love this because the cash flow is great, but the impact, unbeatable. The things you can do with the money you make, that's what makes this industry so enticing to me. Hmm. Um, are these, are these, uh, first of all, how do you deal with the food? I mean, cause do you, do you prepare food? Yep. 20, um, 24 seven care, three meals a day, medication management. You can either have a chef within the home. So our higher level homes where people are paying seven, eight, nine thousand $9,000 a month to live in there. There's a private chef there who will cook made to order breakfast, you know, made to order lunch and a beautiful dinner for them. In our lower homes, the caregivers do all the cooking and cleaning and that's part of their job responsibilities and duties. So you, Isabel, picked an example just because we were talking simple math. You said, okay, 10 beds, 4,500. And then you, we figured out kind of maybe those can make 120 grand a year. But you also said earlier is you you strive for kind of going a little bit further up the food chain, right? Yep. And so maybe yep. you can get more per month. So I guess if, if 4,500 is a national average, what do you think is the average of your students and the facilities that they oversee? Good question. I would say probably 6,000 nationwide because we have students in all 50 states. So it really ranges, right? Mississippi is completely different than New Jersey, right? But let's say we did 6,000 and do you want to go crazy? You want to do a 15 bed? Yeah, why not? Okay. So if we did 6,000, right, times 15 residents, bringing us in 90,000, but our expenses are going to increase in this example because we don't have 10 residents anymore. Now we have 15 residents. So let's make the expenses $50,000, right? Something crazy. Debt service, it's also got to be more than five. We had 5,000 for 10 people, but now we have 15 people. So maybe we do a $15,000 mortgage or debt service because this is going to be a a nice home in a good part of town. That's leaving us with $25,000 every single month, right? Or what, 300K a year on that one home. So that's very, very reasonable and doable in a lot of states. Got it. Huh. And so did you say... You said uh, at the very beginning when we started talking, you're saying 300 to 500 square feet per resident. Was that the range? Correct. Okay. So if it's 15 people, you need a pretty big house because it also doesn't include, or does it, I guess when you, per per person, that's not the size of their bedroom. That's just all in, including kitchen, living room, common area, et cetera. Correct. Bedrooms, obviously you can do 10 by 10, but that's pretty small. I'd say 12 by 12, 14 by 14 is better. But yeah, that's per person within the home. That's not their physical bedroom. Mm -hmm. Got it. Um, Well, it gives me a range. And how easy is it to get financing for, for these projects? Good question. So in our training, we go through the seven ways to use OPM for these so that you're not having to use your own capital to get started. Um, SBA loans are very friendly to this. They like it. They know it. And in our training, we hook our students up with the best the best SBA lenders who know exactly what they're looking to do and can help them get started with that. But I will also say a lot of people do syndication. They use private money, hard money, bank loans, crowdfunding. I mean, it's all over the place. So you know, 300 grand is a good business. I mean, you know, look, you do three of those. Now, all of, all of a sudden, you know, the wolf is uh, away from the door and you know, you're feeling pretty comfortable when you're making 900. And if you can get to four, you're in the seven figures and all of a sudden your life is good. Who buys these things? 
So in other words, if I if I if I start up a facility and I get to that point, who, who acquires these? Good question. So a bunch of our students, their plan, their exit plan is to package up like 50 of them, a hundred of them, and sell them to private equity or hedge funds. The assumption is that basically the big boxes are looking into how do we do this? And they're not going to be looking for onesie twosies. They're going to be looking to purchase something larger, right? So where you've branded them all in your specific brand, they all look and feel the same way. You have your systems and your staffing down path. That's what they're going to be looking for. So when we talk about scaling, that's what we're talking about. Not just doing onesie twosie, but really creating a system for what your homes, what your brand is going to look and feel like to be more attractive to those larger partners who may want to buy you out. Okay. So the, so here's my question then is if, okay, I, I, for whatever reason, I don't have the skill to get to that size scale, which most people don't, right? Just for a, a million different reasons. Like you said, it's hard. <laughs> like that's hard. That's a hard thing to do. That, that, that requires some risk taking, some, some managerial skill that requires a lot. So who buys the, and, and it, maybe it's too soon in the, in the trajectory of the industry to even have a, a really great answer for this, but who, who goes out and buys one facility or two? It's got to, you got to hope and pray it's one of your students. You know what I mean? I would say a lot of our students, that's probably how at least 60% of them get into this. They're buying existing ones. So yeah, so there's a lot of people who are wanting to get into this, who are seeing the market, seeing the trends, and they're willing to purchase the onesie twosies. Um, and so yeah, I would say that's how you get into it. If your exit plan is not the massive exit, the main other exit plan that I have seen other people have is they want this for their own family saying, this will be something I create. I live in if and when I need it, right? Maybe a loved one gets to live in it. And I pass this to my kids as a blessing. My dad passed last year, right around this time. And for him to you know, pass down three cash flowing businesses that make a mega impact was a pretty cool thing. Not to get money in a trust or a big lump sum of cash that I can squander away, but something that changes a community, that changes lives. That's a really cool thing to be able to pass to your kids. So a lot of people want to build this as like a family legacy type thing. And then I see the big exit plan. So those are kind of my two categories of people that I, I see most people exit plan fall into. See, I, I would have preferred the big lump sum of cash if it were me. <laughs> <laughs> to each their own. <laughs> okay. How do you value these businesses, right? Because you, you, you've you got the physical real estate and yet it's a running business. Like how, how do you come up with a, 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 a arrive at a number? Yeah, we do a whole big section in our training all about valuating these businesses and the five different ways that you can do it. But really at the end of the day, it's worth what someone's willing to pay right? So some people, they will pay for speed because you have done the work, you filled the beds, you have the staff, you got the license, you've done the renovation, the home is ready to go. And immediately when they buy it, they're going to be cash flowing. And some people see a whole lot of value in that. And other people see a business and say, there's a million things I need to fix about this to get it to the level I want. So I'm going to undercut you. So it's worth what someone's willing to pay. I've seen people sell them for just the business for 100K. I've seen people sell it for 3 million. It completely ranges. Yeah, yeah. I, well, you know, it's interesting because therein lies opportunity to acquire one. If like, if you, you know, and I would imagine, I, I am sure of it just because that there, because this is a hard, hard business. 
So if it's Ma and Pa that's been running it themselves for the last 30 years, I bet there's some great opportunities. Absolutely. And I will say about 80% of this industry is currently run mom and pop style. You're dead on by saying that. So we are kind of the new like brand of people basically saying, let's run this as professionals. Let's not stop the mom and pop stuff and make these homes really nice and really suitable and something that people actually feel confident and comfortable with their loved ones in. But it's a huge shift from what has been to what it's becoming. Yeah, I I can see that. It's going to mature. It's going to become more professional in large part because of what you're doing. So, uh, well, this has been uh, enlightening. Um, Isabel, if somebody wanted to get a hold of you and they wanted to get into this business and take your course or engage you in any other way, how how would they do that? Yeah, RAL101 is a great website to go. You can schedule a call with me. You can download our free book, free webinars. There's a whole bunch of free stuff there for you. So RAL101.com. Well, you know what? This has been absolutely fantastic. And um, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm excited just after talking to you. Oh, good. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. You, you are animated. And then hold <laughs> for a minute. I want to ask you a question or two after we yeah. I hit the end button and uh, we'll, we'll do it again. Okay. Right. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. 